Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This episode of Word Balloon is brought to you by Alex Ross Art. Go to the website alexrossart.com and you will find original signed comics, prints, great items, not only in the world of comics, but also if you're a Monkey fan, a David Bowie fan, a Monty Python fan, among other great media stars, with the Alex Ross touch in incredible prints, lithographs, and other great items. A great price range of items, too, from $50 to high-end, one-of-a-kind things as well. You'll want to check out for your favorite comic book fans, Alex Ross Art. He has one-of-a-kind, timeless Marvel prints uh, based on his covers, the variant covers, for the Marvel Timeless event. There are lithographs from the DC Universe and Marvel Universe, solo shots, group shots, incredible things at a price you can afford. Check it all out at alexrossart.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here, happy to present Phil Lamar today. It's uh, one of our best conversations of 2020. You know Phil, John Stewart on uh, Justice League, of course, Samurai Jack, so many great animated uh, roles. But not only that, but the guy, of course, was a member of Mad TV for several seasons. Also uh, did, uh, you know, work on Pulp Fiction as Marvin, who could forget his wonderful role of Marvin, the guy who gets his brains blown out. Spoilers. 25 years ago, forgive me. Um... This was a great opportunity to talk to him. He's friends with my buddy Susan Eisenberg, so she's helped me set it up. And I love this because I'm a big comedy nerd, and I'm a big uh, animation nerd, and a big movie and TV nerd. So we got to hit a lot of uh, subjects with Phil. And Phil is just a, a great comic book nerd on his own. So this is really one of the best conversations I had of uh, 2020. Phil Lamar on today's Word Balloon. Word Balloon is brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you greatly, League, for your support via Patreon. Patreon.com slash Word Balloon. Uh, subscribing to Word Balloon really helps out the show. It uh, allows me to innovate as I've been doing this year, uh, creating the uh, video channel on YouTube. And uh, this has really helped me out in keeping the lights on here at WordBalloon.com. Word Balloon is free. It'll always be free. But if you want to help out the cause, consider subscribing to Word Balloon via Patreon. Patreon.com. Word Balloon is also brought to you by Aftershock Comics. It is uh, celebrating the work of Cullen Bunn this month. All My Little Demons is a Cullen Bunn 
Omnibus collecting a lot of his great creator-owned work that he has put together for Aftershock Comics, including The Brothers Dracul, the full series. There's Dark Ark After the Flood 1 through 5, Knights Temporal 1 through 5, Unholy Grail 1 through 5, the original graphic novel Witchhammer, Bloodlines from Shock Volume 1, and Man I Am Evil, dude, from Shock Volume 2. Lots of great supernatural stories from Cullen Bunn, great creator-owned stuff from Aftershock Comics, and uh, not only that, but also great series that are underway, things like Kaiju Score. Uh, We've got the second issue of that coming out at the end of the month. Sympathy for No Devils from Brandon Thomas also coming out uh, at uh, the end of the month, December 30th. And uh, hell, just uh, underway, great uh, books like the Spy Series from Stephanie Phillips, Red Atlantis, and the graphic novel Kill a Man from Steve Orlando, Philip Kennedy, and Al Morgan. Don't forget, you can find great books at Aftershock Comics. You'll find amazing genre-bending ideas from some of the top creators out there. Check it out for yourself. Go to their website, AftershockComics.com. Phil Lamar, welcome to Word Balloon. I've been looking forward to this, man. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me, John. Looking forward to it myself. Well, you know, uh, longtime fan of uh, all your work, voiceover, comedy, film, television. Um, congratulations, <laughs> man. I mean, it's, you've had a hell of a career. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'll, I'll say what I always say to people. It's like, I love everything you've done. It's like, well, thank you for only watching the good stuff. <laughs> I got a couple of uh, things that... Might be blips to some, but actually for the the nerd sphere, I think it, it would be something that you've likely talked about before. Um, we were just talking off the air, and you were telling me about uh, some of your breakthrough roles, and your first two roles in particular. So so let's talk about your first two movies. Right, right. Well, it's funny, because you brought up my second movie, which was Pulp Fiction, which is you know a pretty good way to start. But my very first movie um, was It's Pat, the, uh, the comedy based on the SNL character by Julia Sweeney. And weirdly... It's Pat is the reason I was in Pulp Fiction, because Julia and Quentin Tarantino were friends. And legend has it, he did an uncredited rewrite or something on It's Pat, but there's very little bloodshed in it, so nobody believes that. Um, but Quentin, uh, Julia asked Quentin to come to the Groundlings, where Julia and I were both members of the comedy troupe, and he came and did an improv show one night. You know, wow. in the in the early nineties, and Fun. I happened I happened to be in that show because uh, Julia had just moved back to L.A. from you know New York. She had finished her stint on SNL, um, and so I did the show with Quentin. And then when he was casting Pulp Fiction, he remembered me from that show and asked the casting director to bring me in. That's so, amazing. That's yeah. fantastic. And I forget, yeah, Jul- Julia's at the uh, in the junkyard where uh, yep. where they dump your body with Winston. Yeah. Yeah, that's she's hilarious, man. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> well, you know, and I'm glad you mentioned the grounds because I did want to ask you about, yeah. um, you know, your improv uh, days. I'm from Chicago, and I know you mm-hmm. trained here at Second City and yeah. got to work with the great Del Close. Mm-hmm. Was yeah. that an improv Olympic or was that at a, at Second City? Um, well, it's interesting because when at the time we came out in uh, the mid '80s, it was during the the great improv schism um, when Del left. When Dell left Second City, there was a lot of bad blood. And, but, and he was doing Improv Olympic. They didn't even have their own space yet. We were working out of Cross Currents, a bar on, a, on Belmont, maybe? I'm not sure. Okay. And so I came out. I was in college at the time. And a group of us from our college improv group 
moved out for the summer just to take basic class at um, Second City and to do these workshops with Dell, you know. And we knew even then that it was a pretty amazing opportunity. I mean, we basically had our own class with him every week. And it was, it was fascinating to be, you know, on the ground floor of what became a skyscraper of improv legends. Yeah, absolutely. My God, I've, I've being in Chicago, spent a lot of time at both places, improv Olympic and second city. And, uh, uh, yeah, I, oh, well, you lived, I'm assuming you lived in the city. Where'd you live? I'm, uh, I'm in Roscoe village. I'm actually right out right between uh, Belmont and Addison. Well, actually, I don't know how we, we finagled this, but we wound up the group of us pitching in to rent a frat house at Northwestern. Wow. For the summer. Uh, the Cy the U house. And from Evanston. Yeah. <laughs> you know, That's insane. It was, it was bizarre. But That's great. excellent, man. I grew up in Wilmette, so yeah, I was, I was ah. right next door. Oh. Absolutely, man. This is fantastic. So, and then, you know, so yeah, you spent the summer at Second City. So tell me about breaking into the Groundlings and everything. And again, so Julia was there. Uh, who were some of the other uh, cast members when you were in the Groundlings? Well, when I when I came to start taking classes, um, Julia Sweeney was there, Mindy Sterling, um, wow, Kate cool. Benton, um, Jim Dugan, um, a lot of a lot of people, and it was interesting because the landscape was completely different um, at the time. The Groundlings, you know, this whole improv school thing that has become so huge now, you know, UCB, IO, Groundlings didn't exist. Yeah. They were doing classes on the side just so anybody could make money because the one thing that was true was that you could not make money doing improv. <laughs> I understand. You know? Yes. And you you know the 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 show, the live show, you know, the sketch show Saturdays was the moneymaker for the theater just like at Second City, although at Second City they actually paid the actors. At the Groundlings, we just paid the rent. I had no idea. Wow. Yeah. The Groundlings was not a job. Jeez. You know? God, and, and all the people that came out of the Groundlings and everything. My God. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously, I'm assuming eventually they turned the corner. But well, again, this is back in the infancy. Yeah. And the great thing was, I mean, actually, even at that point, it was about 20 years old. And you had this pedigree. Yeah. You had, you know, um, you know Paul Rubens had come out of there. Cassandra Peterson, who does Elvira. Um, John Lovitz, Phil Hartman. You know, Lisa they, Kudrow. But well, it wasn't until Lisa in the late in the mid early nineties, Lisa hit with Friends, and that was the turning point. Friends was to the Groundlings what Saturday Night Live was to Second City. I understand. That's amazing. It, it established it as this thing and completely changed the world. After the nineties, the school became the engine that drove like classes. People were like you know, knocking down the walls to take classes. You know, we didn't have enough teachers, you know, and before that it was like, everybody was like stabbing each other in the back to get the teaching gig because it paid a hundred dollars a month. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's amazing, man. That, and I, again, I had no idea. Was there ever anything inside and again, ultimately, you go to Mad TV, and we'll get there. But um, it did seem weird. 
that um, Lorne Michaels would really raid Second City and, and not too many. If I mean, honestly, I can't think of groundling people. Well, Phil Hartman, of course, came right. from the groundlings, and, and he went. He managed to get to SNL. But yeah, it really did seem like he was really like you know grabbing the people from Chicago rather than the LA improv people. Well, I think part of it is SNL tends to people. It's about familiarity, especially when you're you know running doing the hours they're running and you know all buying drugs. You want people you trust. So, <laughs> and Lauren's Canadian, and there was a, definitely a pipeline between Chicago and Toronto with the Second City. You Absolutely, know? the two the two cities for people who don't know both had companies, and yeah, man, like Belushi would go up to Toronto, and John Candy would come to Chicago, and Flaherty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really interesting. Yeah, there was a great deal of cross-pollination, so I think it was more familiar to him. I mean, he he did get Lorraine in the very first cast, who came from the Groundlings. Right, okay, sure. But it was always just a little bit, you could tell that wasn't really in the wheelhouse, you know? Like, because she would, you know, the Groundlings style is very character-y, you know, we're we're known for the wigs, and, (laughs) you know, you look at John doing, you know, John... Belushi doing the, he didn't even shave, you know, <laughs> like, you know, well, we're, we're always told, you know, in Chicago, the idea is wear your character as lightly as you wear a straw hat, you know, at the groundlings, it's like wigs, paint, you know, we need a whole locker to hold all the wigs. And you, it's funny because if you look at the difference between Elvira and Pee Wee, like that level of character, you know, digging in. Fifty years later, they're still doing those characters. They're still wearing those wigs. Absolutely, you know? man. I and I want to talk to you about, of course, uh, your time as well uh, with Pee Wee on, <laughs> on Broadway. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So, jeez, I uh, well, you know, and again, this is great because we can talk comedy, we can talk vo- voiceover, and obviously, we can talk, you know, camera stuff that you've done as well. Um, so yes, you do, you know, again, Pulp Fiction, something we were talking about off the, off the uh, air. Um, y- you know, Marvin is this indelible character. But I don't remember any memorable lines. I just remember a lot of fear in your face yep. and obviously reacting to Samuel L. And, and Travolta and everything. And with you and Frank Whaley and everything scared right. out of your minds. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, no, I take, I take no credit whatsoever for anything oh. to do with that. <laughs> I am just so happy to have been a part of it, you know. And it was, it was one of the best sets, you know, in 30 plus years in show business still. It's one of the best sets I've ever been on, you know, and I think part of it had to do with the fact that that Quentin set a tone. I mean, it was his second movie and the first one was great, but it wasn't a huge hit. So there was very little ego, but it was also, I think every person in that cast had never read a script that good. And when you have a script that good, it makes you so happy to show up to work every morning because, you know, this business we're in. Everything is out of your control. Of course. Nobody knows what's go- what makes something a hit. What makes something even good? Nobody, no idea. You can do the greatest performance in the world, but if you have a crappy editor, he's like, oh, why did you use all of the shots in the back of my head? <laughs> and all of a sudden, you don't look like a good actor. <laughs> but on that set, everybody knew. It's like, I don't care. If nobody else ever sees this, I know it's going to be good. You know? Yeah. And you had, I mean, every Friday, people, you know, they'd pass out flyers. This is where we're going drinking. And I came on to shoot probably the last month of a three-month shoot. And usually by that point, people on set are done. 
Everybody's looking for their next gig. They've broken up with whoever they started dating in the first week. You know, it's over. But on that set, Friday night, everybody went out. Even Travolta took a flyer and showed up at the bar to go drinking. Wow, that's cool. You know? That's amazing, man. Yeah, what a great cast. And again, you got, you know, you're, you're sitting there working. Even even Frank Whaley, great actor and everything, you know, great young actor. Well, it was hilarious because while I'm sitting on set with Frank and he's telling these amazing stories about being on the doors and the pretension of everything. And then we turn around and there's Sam Jackson creating an absolutely breathtaking performance with no pretension at all. Like that's awesome. He just flipped a switch and all of a sudden turned into somebody that we were actually physically afraid to be in the room with. <laughs> that's outstanding. Do you ever run into anybody, you know, over the years still? And like you ever see I mean Sam Sam used to do I mean he did San Diego when he needs to. He still does. And he's a big he's another uh, comic nerd and everything. Well, that's that's the funny thing is the the couple of times I've run into Sam since then has been at our local comic shop, Golden Apple on Melbourne. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> that's and that's literally I mean I've never run into him at any award shows or anything, but I've run into him at Golden Apple. That's know, excellent. On, on new Comic Book Day. Of course, of course. We hope to all get back to New Comic Book Day right. eventually. Yeah, man. I know. Crazy times. Yeah. Um well, uh, you know, and and I had no idea that you got mad TV around the same time that you were just finishing up Pulp Fiction, correct? Yes, yes. We um Pulp Fiction came out, I think, in uh, August of ninety four. Four, and then we um, won the Oscar that spring, and then we started Mad TV in June of '95. Wow, that's amazing! Yeah, actually, one of the first sketches in the first episode was a Pulp Fiction parody, <laughs> and I was mad because they really wanted me to play myself. They had a gag where it's oh, like Marvin. at Bill the Bar, it's like not again, and I'm like, no, I want to play Jules. <laughs> Well, your range on voices, as we've learned as well in voiceover and stuff, is incredible because, you know, you go from Hermes and that great Calypso voice to Jon Stewart, you know, the, the, the straightest of straight arrow Green Lanterns and everything. Oh, yes. You know how it is. <laughs> That's amazing, man. So to, to audition for Mad TV, like, uh, do you remember what you did? I, I imagine, did you do uh, impressions? And, and, you know, did you have characters in hand? Obviously, coming from the Groundlings, I'm sure you brought some of your characters along. Yes, well, that's the thing. is uh, By 95, I had gone through, you know, three years of Groundlings training and, what, th another three years in the company by that point. I had a lot of sketches, a lot of characters. I'd, I'd also done impressions coming up. You know, uh, I remember... <laughs> There's definitely something to be learned from doing a Michael Jackson impression in a live sketch show. Because it's really, it's like, okay, you have to make sure I have at least three sketches before my next sketch. Because I have to unpaint my body. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, Did, so it was live? Mad TV was live? I, I oh, always no, assumed. No, this, no you, this is at the Groundlings. Oh, excuse me. Of course. Okay. And then uh, when I went in to audition for Mad TV, because actually. At, by that point, I wasn't performing in the Groundling show because normally what happens is sketch casting people come and they watch the sketch show and then they bring you in. I wasn't in the show at that time, but I had done a lot of television work for Fox and so I was on the list. In fact, I had already done a pilot 
for Fox before I got the Mad TV audition. And I remember when my agent called, it's like, yeah, they want you to come in and for this sketch comedy show. I'm like, I've already got a job. This pilot's great. It's with this great young comic named Carlos Mencia. It's definitely going to go. Turned out it was the seventh Carlos Mencia pilot to not get picked up. <laughs> Fair bet in the 90s, you would think. Absolutely, man. But the funny thing was, when I went in for Mad TV, I honestly thought I was set and had a prime time gig. So I didn't give a crap. I went in, I'm like, I've been doing sketch and improv for 10 years, whatever. Um, I just had my stuff on a pad and I was like, all right, um, oh, here, I think I'll do this one next. <laughs> and, and I think there is, there's something in Hollywood where if you have the balls to not seem desperate, people are drawn to you like moths to a candle. Like, what does he know? <laughs> Why is he not afraid like everyone else? I'm, so, uh, I'm, friends, I'm friends with William Peterson. He has said the same thing. You got to go in to negotiations like, I don't need this. So you impress me. Right. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. man. That's fantastic. You know, so, and, it's, and, and, and I wound up, you know, getting it, you know, thanks to my delusion, because, of course, that other <laughs> pilot was dead in the water. Was it, I mean, I'm assuming it was great because I saw that beyond the 100 plus episodes that you were on, that you, you know, obviously you were able to write as well on the show. And I wondered, I, you know, I don't know how much you know, again, comparing SNL to MAD, uh, other than, as you point out, the drug runs and things like that, that we know were happening on the East Coast. But yeah, what was, you know, did you ever like talk to any SNL people about writing for MAD versus writing for SNL and performing? Well, actually, there were some, some stark differences. Um, one, we had a much more humane schedule because we were not doing the show live. Um, and we also hadn't been... You know, our schedule hadn't been formed during the, the Coke years of the 70s. So we actually had, you know, a 9 to 5, 9 to 9 type of schedule. Um, but weirdly, our producers created a kind of wall between the performers and the writers. Right, uh, actors were not technically allowed to write like if you wrote a sketch, you had to find a writer who would put his name on it and also take the paycheck. Um, and they, in the very beginning, a few writers performed in sketches, but at some point they killed that and said, okay, no, writers are not allowed to perform, which was ridiculous because you had some really talented people who could do both, you know? But um, the, so I didn't actually get a writing credit until my, my final season. And I, I think I only got that by being kind of a dick. <laughs> you know, when we were talking, you were starting to say, and I'll start the sentence again, that uh, they put a wall, I'm assuming, between the writers and the performers. Right. And I'm not really sure why, because they had such talented people on both sides. Um, and, you know, because Patton Oswalt was a writer on our show in the first two seasons. Wow. You know, it's like, oh, gee, I wonder if he can perform at all. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, really, man. Exactly. So, and yeah, were there other uh, writers on, on the show, uh, you know, beyond your original cast that we might know some of the people that were writing for um, Matt at the time? Oh, gosh. I'm sure. Uh, tons of people. Well, the weird thing is, 
And a lot of people, I think, forget this. The show went on for eight years after I left. I was only on the first five. It ran for 14 years. I know. Um, but no, there were, I mean, uh, Keegan Key and Jordan Peele, gee, they're, they're pretty, pretty talented writers. Yeah, I, mean, I might have <laughs> heard of them. I'm not sure. Yeah, exactly. Right? Oh, Jesus. Um, yeah, no, tons of people. And um, it was, it was, I mean, it was, it was hard work doing an hour of sketch and, and you know, back to what we were saying before, when I first auditioned, the other thing to remember is it was not really a coveted um, position, you know, compared to being on a primetime show. Like late night was the ghetto of television. Sure. You know, they paid you less because it was guaranteed the audiences were smaller. It's like, well, most of the country is asleep. We're not going to pay you the same money we pay primetime actors. Wow. You know, so by the time I left after five years, I was getting paid almost what I would have gotten paid in my first season on a primetime show. Wow. Wow. You know? That's insane. Is that, I mean, after five years, was it the grind? Did you just want to do other things? What, what happened? Um, both. It was it was the grind of doing an hour of you know content you know a week. Um, it was also not the the it wasn't the best work environment, you know, um, because of those kind of decisions. You know, there were a lot of decisions made that were not in people's best interests. I mean, honestly, I remember you know Artie Lang was on the show in the the first season, and okay. Artie went through you know a complete mental breakdown. And, you know, the producers came, you know, we all met with us because we were, you know, we'd worked with this guy for a year. And it's like, we were, it's like, what's going on? Are we, it's like, well, don't worry. His manager says I'm back on set, fat and happy and th in a month and a half. We're like, what? What are you talking about? No, he needs to go. And we, as a cast, had to stand up and say, absolutely not. If you bring him back here, you will kill him. Wow. And as a, and as a matter of fact, if you bring him back, we'll all walk. Wow. Man, harsh stuff, man. I know. And that's, again, it's these shows. Uh, it really does sound like they're buzzsaws, as cool as they are, and a great platform for you to get noticed. I, again, yeah, I mean, it, no, it's, yeah, I guess you got to be strong to survive that. And it doesn't have to be that way. And and I, and honestly, I do recognize how fortunate I was to be on Mad TV, because the thing is, there are a ton of sketch shows from the you know late 80s, early 90s that flamed out in a season or maybe two, you know, it's like, Hey, weren't you on that sketch comedy show? The edge. Nobody remembers that, you know, exit 57. Right. Um, the, the state, the state is well right. known for all the people after the fact. Yeah. Know, what they I mean, did after that. Yeah. Reno 911, all of the great shows they did. Afterwards. Yep, yep. But actually, do you know who was in the edge? Tell the prime time sketch show on Fox. Uh, cute little gal named Jennifer Aniston. Wow. That's fantastic. And, and Tom Kenny. Wow. SpongeBob. The guy you may have heard of since then. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, man. Yeah. yeah. I also know in 1999, you worked on a movie with uh, Mark Altman and Rob Meyer Burnett. And it's, man, I'm telling you, I love free enterprise. And I've, <laughs> in the last five or six years, have gotten to really be friends with Rob. And, Good. Oh, absolutely, man. And uh, no, I love that movie. And uh, I know you you were basically channeling one of their good friends, you know, uh, part of their circle of friends, right? Yes, yes. Well, I mean, 
that movie is definitely uh, a sort of hinge point in my career and life in a lot of ways. It's the first thing that ever took me to a Comic-Con, you know. WonderCon, so they got us, we all went to WonderCon after the movie came out. Um, and it taught me about true geekery. Like, <laughs> you know, because I, I thought I was a geek, you know, because I read comics growing up, you know, I played D&D. But, you know, I'm like, oh, I discovered girls. Bye. You know, but <laughs> then I realized these guys are for real. Like Mark and Rob gave everybody in the cast a videotape as of reference material. So we would get all the references because <laughs> the cuts were so deep, you know, um, but it also introduced me to Eric McCormick, you know, um, sure. Ray from Weigel, you know, yeah. and just. And, and the person I played, Eric Wallace, who, you know, at the time was an up-and-coming young writer, just like Mark and Rob. I actually now work for Eric because he is the showrunner of the CW show, The Flash. Oh, of course he is. Wow, that's amazing. Sure. Yeah, Holy no. cow, man. That's excellent. I, we, may as, we may as well talk for a minute about The Flash. How's, how's that experience been? Yes. Um, well... It, we're in a really wonderful, rarefied, and bizarre time because voiceover used to be its own corner of the world, you know? And the fact that I moved from, from on-camera to voiceover was weird and bizarre and unnatural at the time. <laughs> Nobody, you know, there were like maybe three people, me and Cree Summer, you know, who did both. <laughs> but now we live in a world where I'm doing voiceover gigs on on-camera shows. You know, um, Eric and the folks over at Flash brought in the character of Rat, you know, and it's a, it's a version heavily informed by Gail Simone's Sinister Six version of Ragdoll. You know, the Peter Merkel where he's just super creepy. Oh, yeah. You know, and so they found um, a contortionist named Twisty Troy who can do most of that stuff live on set. And, but then they wanted me to create a voice to match what he was doing physically. And so the two of us are ragdoll. That's outstanding, man. I love you know? that on Doom Patrol as well. Yeah. With Matt, with Matt Bomber and Brendan Fraser doing uh, Negative Man and, and uh, Robot Man and everything. Right. It's, no, I think it's great. I, I, and I really, you know, that's awesome. And, I'm, and thank you for name checking your physical ragdoll because yeah, man, it's, that's, that's outstanding. You know, yeah. wow. You're like in uh, David Prowse, uh, James Earl Jones territory with Darth Vader and everything. Right. Exactly. Well, and it's, <laughs> it is funny because the fact of the matter is, you know, as geeks, we can talk to this. It is only because the technology has gotten to a place where that can be done on a TV show, Yes, you know, where they can, I mean, the flash, especially there are five or six guys I know who have done voices on the flash, you know, okay. my friend David Sobolov uh, voices Grodd, Tony Todd, you know, did Zoom, you know. And the thing is, as comic book people, we're used to characters in masks. And, you know, because they just have a word balloon. But it's only been in the last maybe six, seven years where the, C the computerized technology has gotten to the point where they can make those characters feel real. 
you know, so it's not like the effects at the end of the first Spawn movie, where it's just like, oh, God, we all know what we wish they were doing, but that ain't it. You know? <laughs> Everybody, let's go back to reading the comic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, honestly, the leap in technology, you know, the Marvel movies certainly benefited from it as well. And yeah, and it's, it's funny because I would talk to broadcast people and nerds and we're all like, man, when CGI gets good, wait till the, the stuff that they're going to be able to make. And here we are. So no, that's pretty amazing. Because do you remember in the Spider-Man movies, like the very first one, the swinging was, it was probably 85% there, but it looked a little weird. That's hilarious. And they, and they were so afraid of the mask. Oh, absolutely. My God, yes. He yeah. was pulling that mask off every possible chance. Oh, he's got oil on it. Quick, take it off. You know. <laughs> well, that was the brilliance of uh, keeping um, Tony Stark and having, yes. uh, you know, uh, and I forget what it's called right now. The uh, the, uh, the AI. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the software that keeps him, uh, you know, yeah, Dark. in the helmet, but you're seeing his face and everything. No, no it's yeah. genius. I credit John Favreau, who is also a, a Chicago guy. And uh, a genius and the sweetest man in the world and a great cook um, with solving the mask problem. To me, you look at Spider-Man 3, where James Franco has to lift up his mask every time he has a line in the middle of a battle. And then you go to Iron Man 1, where it's like, nope. We, and we don't even question the fact that we're inside there. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't take the energy down or anything. Sorry. I'm sorry, John. I will rant about uh, this stuff. <laughs> tangents are welcome. That's all right, Phil. No, this is my show's all about tangents. You heard Susan and I talk in old Hollywood. Give me a break. So this is <laughs> yes. this at least is you know subject related. So I think we're fine. Well, so, after this, you you and I will go off about. You must remember this. One of my favorite podcasts. I, man, I I keep telling people I'm teaching right now. As soon as I'm done teaching, I would like to do a narrative storytelling podcast like Katrina does because it uh, you know a boxing. I mm mean, I'm a big boxing guy. I want to oh. cover that period after Joe Lewis retired up through Sonny Liston when the mob really had a stranglehold on boxing. Ooh. It's a great story. It's an excellent Indeed. story. So, That'll be great. Well, back to nerd stuff, the yes. uh, other nerd stuff. <laughs> I, well, I'm, curious, I'm curious about, um, as you say, um, going from you know being a face actor to being a voiceover person. Was that necessity? That That's just where the gigs were? How did it happen? No, it was very, it was very strange. Um, I think it was... A bizarre, you know, just coming together of a lot of different things. Um, I've been doing improv and sketch. So multiple characters, you know, were in my back pocket. Um, and on Mad TV, they, ins they started doing these animated bits, just tiny bits. And they had the cast voice the animated characters. Because we were already paid for the episodes. <laughs> <laughs> They're not writing an extra check. Um, but it turned out that gave me a good three, four years of time behind the mic, figuring out, oh, I know how to do characters in wigs. How do I just channel it through the voice? And so by the time I left Matt, although before I left Matt, I started doing some. You know, I, I was lucky enough to hook up with a... Uh, up-and-coming uh, young voice agent named uh, Kelly Garner, who was starting out his voiceover department. And, you know, I got in there on the ground floor, and he was hungry and, you know, pushing. And so I started getting, you know, little things. And again, bizarre coincidence, 
the women who cast me on Mad TV in 94 and 98 were casting another show for Fox called Futurama. And among the, the hundreds of people they brought in, they also brought in David Herman, who had been on Mad TV with me, and myself. And so we wound up in the cast of this show alongside, you know, bloody voiceover legends, you know, Billy West and Maurice LaMarche, you know, yeah. Tress McNeil. You know, it was just like, whoa. Um, and that turned out to be a pretty great first voiceover gig. <laughs> That's fantastic. I didn't realize that was your first gig. Wow, yeah. man. So did you, you know, did they want Hermes to have this Jamaican uh, thing going? Or did you bring that? How did, how did the character happen? Well, no. Originally, I went, when I went into audition, they had, you know, they had the Planet Express business idea that they had. It was going to be a delivery business because he oh. started out as a deliver, pizza delivery. Now he's getting the future delivery. And, you know, in the future, every business must have a certified bureaucrat to make sure there's enough paperwork. So basically, they just had the idea of an accountant character for the business named Dexter. But then as they were, you know, I got cast and I was just doing, a, you know, a sort of a, you know, hefty accountant voice, I think, something like that. <laughs> but then they realized that, oh, I think Matt himself said, oh, God, I've got too many characters whose names end in E.R. I've got Homer. I've got Bender. I've got Dexter. Uh, let's change this up. So he became Hermes for a reason I still don't know why. I have to ask David X. Cohen that someday. But it wasn't until about three episodes in that they realized the character wasn't really clicking. And somebody threw out the idea of like, hey, what if he was like a Jamaican accountant? <laughs> and so Matt Groening comes up to me in the hallway after a table read one time and goes, say, Phil, can, uh, can you do a Jamaican accent? And thank God he asked. Because there are some producers who, when they have a new idea, think they need a new actor. Sure. You know, and yeah. And on Futurama, they had already replaced, you know, two leads. The original Fry and the original Leela had been replaced. I didn't so, realize that. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So <laughs> I feel so, so lucky that I could do a Jamaican accent. <laughs> Great character. I love... Uh... I love Hermes' rival, and now I'm forgetting. Uh, Barbados uh, Slim. Barbados Slim, of course. Shame on me. Absolutely, man. It was voiced by John DiMaggio. And I swear, <laughs> John, if we go through it, I swear John did more black characters on Futurama than I did. <laughs> John was on the show when he made I Know That Voice, the documentary. Oh, cool. And yeah, sweetheart of a guy. Oh. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know better than I do. Absolutely, man. No, it's what a cast. And seriously, I got to tell you, man, I'm, I'm, I was in Chicago all this time and nothing drew. I mean, I love football just like anybody else. But your show would get preempted by football in, in the East Coast and, you know, in the central time zone all the time. And it's, you know, well, now we now join Futurama in progress. And it's like, oh, great. With three minutes left. Terrific. Right. That's outstanding. Well, well, that's that's a whole other story. Um. Because Matt Groening had created The Simpsons. And The Simpsons had basically created Fox. So by the 90s, he was untouchable. You, if you were an executive at Fox, you didn't give notes on The Simpsons. You know? That's awesome. That's Matt fantastic. was the Pope. 
And, and I think a lot of the executives at that time resented it because if not for him, they wouldn't have jobs and they couldn't exert their executive will over him. But then he came up with this new show. Wait, but it's not The Simpsons. So we can give notes on it. So, and I think there was, there was just this sort of thing where, and also they wanted another Simpsons. And Matt's like, I'm an artist. I don't do this. I don't paint the same picture twice. So he did the show that he was interested in. And of course, they couldn't say no to a new Matt Groening show. So they did the next best thing. They smothered it in the crib. They wouldn't put it in the slot after The Simpsons, which is insane. Like, they look the same. Why would you not? Yeah, no, we feel like it, it'll go better here, opposite 60 Minutes. And we always we always joke that, you know, we knew we were going to get canceled because they would do this thing like, you know, the show was on at seven o'clock with, you know, King of the Hill at 730. But then they had these promos like primetime begins at eight on Fox. Like, wait, we're we're not we're on before that, guys. <laughs> Are we not primetime? I guess not. <laughs> so, yeah, they they were gunning for that show. And I think it was. I don't know if it was conscious or unconscious, but canceling Futurama was a way of the executives being able to flip the finger at the Simpsons because they couldn't. That's really. amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. But again, the quality of what you guys were doing with Futurama, you couldn't kill that show. I mean, you guys are the original zombie cartoon. You you could not die. And, right. and again, that was great. Was it was it the reruns on? I can't remember which came first. If it was Cartoon Network or, or Comedy Central. Well, I think at very first, it was the DVD sales. It was pure fans. It was fans finding them, going to stores and buying up these, these episodes of those first four seasons. And the people at the studio at Fox realized, oh, crap, we left money on the table. <laughs> hey, guys, get back here. Get in here. <laughs> and so they brought all, brought all the writers back and had them write you know, uh, these, the four straight to DVD movies, which are fantastic. Absolutely. You know, which is no mean feat. Cause they also t told them, make sure they can also be cut up each one into four episodes so we can tack it on to the syndicated package for reruns. Cause we want to make our money twice. <laughs> <laughs> they work both ways. That's the good right? news. But you then know? the, the reruns on uh, comedy central did so well that after that, Comedy Central brought the show back for new, a regular season, you know, for two, three more seasons. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And it's hilarious because at the time we came back, that was unheard of. Now, people think shows come back from the dead. Anytime a show gets canceled, I'm starting a petition. Like, a petition? Man, and... In 2001, you could take your petition and mail it to Rupert Murdoch so he could smoke it. <laughs> <laughs> I understand, man. No, that's true. You and Family Guy, you guys were the two shows that, yeah, thank God for, like you said, DVD sales and, you know, eventually syndication. That's, that's outstanding, man. Is, well, it, I mean, the, the weird thing is, when that happened, because first Futurama came back and then Family Guy came back, which I was also on from the beginning. So then I began to think it was me. <laughs> now I'm blanking. What were you on Family Guy, fellow? Shame on me. Well, I, um, I had a recurring character of Ollie Williams. 
Oh, the, ah, it's going to rain. What's the weather the like, Holly? Right. Ah, it's raining sideways. <laughs> Phil, I never knew you were our Holly. That's fantastic. We love Holly. Absolutely. Yeah. But the weird thing is, again, because of Mad TV, um, Alex Borstein and I recorded a pilot presentation, a 15-minute little short thing that Seth used to sell the show to the network. Because one of the executives on Mad TV asked us as a favor to her to help out this this young kid who's got an animated project I'm helping him do. Wow. You know, cut to, you know, he's got a $250 million deal. Man, we get, Phil, you got to do the Orville. I hope to God that uh, Seth is thinking about you doing the Orville. That would be fantastic. God, I would love to. Jesus. Um, yeah, he's so talented. It's funny because there's so many people in Hollywood who get paid so much money. Seth MacFarlane is one of the few people who's ever actually been worth the amount of money he gets paid. And the guy sings awesome lounge songs, man. He, he I mean, oh, I've yeah. seen him in concert. He's incredible. I'm a big Sinatra, Tony Bennett era fan. And he, and it's great because he picks obscure songs and they still sound like, you know, and they were, they were written by the same Jimmy Van Heusen, you know, kind of uh, guys and stuff, Sammy Kahn. And, and it's great because they sound fresh. But they still got that lounge sound that's so great. Oh, and he comes by his love for that, honestly. I mean, the, when he got his track and he fought, bought his big house, uh, initially all he had in was his piano. <laughs> you know? But he's such a great singer. I mean, writer, actor, singer, producer, you know, everything. Conceptualist. But I remember there's, a, there's actually one of the Futurama movies. Um, he sings the theme song. Oh, wow. And even I didn't know. At first, I thought it was an actual uh, obscure Sinatra song. But then I hear the lyrics like, no, 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 that's not that's a new song that they wrote. I'm like, wait, who's singing that? And then as I watch the movie, I see Seth's name in the credits. I'm like, what was Seth? I didn't. And it wasn't until the third time I watched the movie. I'm like, oh, damn, that's him. That's amazing. That's awesome. Well, tell me about tell me about John Stewart and then getting involved in Justice League, because. Once again, another show that they couldn't kill. And, right. you know, and I'm, I'm so glad. And I was, you know, I, I really, you know, Susan, I keep calling her Spartacus because she's <laughs> politicking so hard. Right. For the reunion absolutely. movie. And, hey, man, I'm, I'm a fan. I absolutely would love to see that. And I know you all would love to do it. And also, man, uh, we're pro- I mean, honestly, it hasn't been announced yet. Terrificon in Connecticut. I was looking forward to all of you guys coming back. Uh, and and moderating your panel and sitting in on it and watching you guys do a table read because oh, cool. uh, I mean you know they were even bringing Andrea Romano and everything. No, Mitch had you guys covered and you yeah. know everybody everybody except Carl Lumley you know willing to come right. back and, and do this and everything and that's amazing. So obviously and I've seen uh, Rob Rob Bryden interview you guys on his. Uh, am I saying Rob Rob's name? Rob Paulson. Rob Paulson. Rob Paulson. Pardon me. Okay, yes, Rob Bryden, the British comedian who does a million voices as well. <laughs> Sorry, Rob Paulson. No offense, man. Uh, I loved when you guys were all together on his podcast yeah. and did that great, you know, combo interview and stuff. So, yeah, tell me tell me about getting John Stewart in Justice League. Well, by this point, I've actually been doing voiceover for a while. This is roughly 99, 2000. And, you know, I've got a couple of shows under my belt and feeling my my way through this. Uh, I've done at that point. Futurama's up and running. Um, Static Shock had been going for Kids yes. WB. Um, 
And I think possibly Samurai Jack was going at Cartoon Network. Um, or those, those were around the same time. Understood. You know, and because I was already at Warner Brothers doing and working with Andrea on Static Shock and Dwayne McDuffie, you know, yeah. so I got to audition for that. Although it was funny because I still had to audition. There was, there was nothing handed. Okay. And I remember going to Salami Studios and we're all auditioning. I mean, and also it was super special as a comic book guy. This is the Justice League. This is, you know, and you just, again, like with Pulp Fiction, you knew it was going to be special. You knew it was going to be good because, you know, we grew up on Super Friends, which even at the time we knew was cheesy. <laughs> yeah. But now this is the guy who did Batman, the animated series, his take on Super Friends. Oh, my God. It can't fail. So you're going in there to audition and I remember Dennis Haysbert you know Dennis who does the Allstate commercials who was the president in 24 you know Absolutely. amazing amazing act Dennis auditioned ahead of me so before wow. I come, he comes out and I'm just like he's that he looks like the drawing he could totally be John Stewart he could you know absolutely I mean? be John he's 6'4 he's cut you know, and, he's, and he's got that voice you know he's just got that Dennis Haysbert voice <laughs> So he walks out and I walk in. I'm just like, it can't, it can't be anything but that. You know, so I'm just doing, you know, that. That's Dennis Hayes. <laughs> you know, I'm John Stewart. But, you know, we talked a little bit more about the character and, you know, and I started to infuse it with, it's like, oh, he's from Detroit. My dad's from Detroit. Like, so I, you know, threw a little bit of a, you know, the smoky cool thing, you know, that my dad has. So it wasn't straight up Dennis. It wasn't okay. just big power. You know, it was a combination of things. And thank goodness it worked because for a comic book fan, that was a literally a dream come true. You know? Yeah. Well, you guys, you guys benefited, obviously, you know, Bruce, like you said, Bruce, Tim, the writing as well. And, oh. uh, man, the John Stewart hot girl relationship, outstanding. Right? And pretty groundbreaking when you think about it as well. Yeah. I mean, you could you could film that. You could film Starcrossed as a movie. You 100%. Know? Absolutely. And yes. I think that's what was so amazing about it is, I mean, that was a not adult, but mature relationship. You know, they were sort of at odds with each other. Then they found as warriors, they had this thing in common. And then they started to connect, but resisted it. And then eventually gave into it. But... And then it turned out it was, but that's the thing. It wasn't just like soap opera. No. The way they tied it into the ongoing plot. It's like, well, not only are they just going to break up, <laughs> she's also going to be implicated in a plot to invade the earth. It's like, wow, man, you know, please don't bring up invading the earth. It makes me think of my ex. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then also that, time travel episode in the future where you get right. to play old static and you guys meet your kid and that's fantastic too <laughs> well and that's that's a, a credit i always say people say i mean just league is the uh, best version of so many of these characters and i give all credit to the writers you know stan berkowitz um rich fogel um Dwayne mcduffie you know all the folks that were there they knew the comics 
they knew the characters and appreciated what was great about them on that level, but they were not slaves to it. They were also, they were, it's like, this is about the story first. This is about this working. So we'll take what we like and what works from the original source material and we'll jettison the rest, you know? Yeah. It doesn't have to be, because I feel like so many times comic book writers are hamstrung. It's like, well, you're going to start an issue 132. It's like, you can't start fresh. You, you're stuck with everything that came in those 131 issues before you, yeah. you know? Yeah. So you only have so much room to create. But these guys were like, you know what? We're not about continuity. We're about creating a world that's going to be effective and moving for our audience, you know? And it's interesting because I can't remember if it was at the audition or at the first record, I asked Bruce, why John and not Hal? Because you got a Green Lantern, you know, and, and at that time, no one had ever done anything like that before nope. in an adaptation. Nope. You know, adaptations were always super mainstream. Let's take the best known from that and move it into this. Totally. And, and it's wild because this was before diversity and representation were buzzwords or anything. But Bruce's thing was like, look, I just didn't want to show, do a show where seven white people save the earth every week because that's boring. Not for any political reason, but from a storytelling standpoint, that's not as interesting. I completely agree, agree. And I think the greatest compliment to all of you guys was when they did the Green Lantern movie with Ryan Reynolds, just like when they did the Spider-Man movies. And they're like, hey, how about how come there's not a Miles Morales movie? It was, hey, how about John Stewart? And literally millions of people, because of what you guys did, right. knew about John Stewart. And that's right. fantastic. And it's great. And it was. It was a missed opportunity to even at least have him as a side character if you wanted to keep Al for the first movie. But no, man, absolutely. A whole generation grew up with your Green Lantern. And, yeah. and, and, and it was fun, again, in that future episode where there was a little warble of, uh, of alternate universes and Hal showed up for five seconds. Right, <laughs> right. So when you did Static, and forgive me, were you, because I know you played old Static, you did Young Static as well, the original yes. one? That's yes. amazing. And again, a testament to your range and everything to be able to <laughs> do Young Static and old Static and stuff. That's great. Well, actually, there was an episode of Static Shock when after we started Justice League where they crossed over and had Jon Stewart come into an episode of Static. Hey, that's cool. And I, and I honestly looked at the writers like, are y'all messing with me? Seriously? <laughs> you don't want me to go from this? To this? At the same time? Guys, that's not fair. That's outstanding, man. That's that's great. That's old radio stuff. Were you and as you got as again as you got into voices, did you ever study any of the old radio actors that would double and triple sometimes and do different voices? Um, actually, that's that's really interesting because I didn't because that that whole era of radio was a little ahead of me and and you know when we were growing up, you'd have to, you'd have to find the, the 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 tapes, you know, and you could sense, order them. Yeah. But they, they weren't readily available. And if you didn't have somebody you knew who exposed you to it, like nobody in my family, my parents didn't listen to, you know, um, radio stuff growing up. So, I mean, I did eventually start learning about it and certainly saw a lot of parallels to what we were doing in voiceover. Yeah. Um, but I didn't I didn't I wasn't exposed to it growing up. 
you know, which is, which is a shame. Man, I'm glad you brought up Dwayne McDuffie. Again, it's someone that I was lucky enough to get on Word Balloon and meet a few times at the con. Oh, cool. Great guy. Yeah, great guy. Yeah. And, a great, and a great loss because yeah. really a guy who understood, who got it, you know, both both in animation and in comics. I'm sure if he had gotten some live uh, action opportunities as well, he would yes. continue to, to really, you know, keep going and stuff. Since they started doing, uh, you know, now James Tucker uh, running the show after mm-hmm. Bruce Timm has stepped down and everything. Um, have you done any of the DC movies, uh, the the re- more recent post Bruce Tim era? DC um, stuff. Let me see. I think, actually, weirdly, I have not done many. I did a a very small part in the Red Hood movie, and and I think until uh, just this past year, I did. Um, I got to reprise John Stewart um, in uh, Superman Red Sun. Oh, that's great! I haven't seen it yet. I I got yeah. it sitting here. I haven't watched it yet. I love a great story. Oh God, such a great story! You know, it's it, it's funny because it's I always joke that Red Sun is one of those things where those of us who st- stand in the back of the comic book shop and like argue about stuff, that's the one thing we never thought of. It's like, well, if the Hulk, you know, had gotten hit by the gamma rays, but he had been standing behind something, he'd only be the Hulk from the waist down, and you know, like <laughs> we would do stuff like that. But nobody ever said, what if Superman's ship, you know, kal ship landed somewhere other than Kansas? Like, we never even thought of it landed in New York. <laughs> <laughs> Much less Russia. Yeah. But once you, once you think of it, when someone says it to you, you're like, oh, it changes everything. <laughs> you know? So, so like, you know... Uh, did you did you learn how to read because of comic strips and comic books? How far back does your love of comic books go? Um, actually, I don't. Th- no, I was I was reading at a young age and was devouring everything, and so wound up reading comics. Sure. Um, but my my love, my serious deep love, turns goes back to when I was about ten. Okay. There was a family next door to us who had an older son. And he came back from college and was like, I'm a grown-up now. I'm getting rid of all my kid stuff. And he had, like, two long boxes of his, his – and he gave me his entire comic book collection. You know, and this guy's about 10 years older than me. So I had access to, like, some Silver Age stuff, oh, you know, great. that I wouldn't otherwise have had. Ac- I mean, I have a copy of Detective Comics that's older than I am, <laughs> you know, as well as some, some Mad Magazines – you know, going all the way back. And Mad Mag was definitely a big, big touch point for me. And that's another reason why getting on Mad TV was like kind of super special. Actually, the best thing about being on Mad TV is that I sort of showed up in an issue of Mad Magazine. They did a Mad TV issue and and Mort Drucker drew a version of one of my characters. Wow. And that was just like, oh. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Who we just uh, sadly lost uh, in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, and really, especially at his passing, everyone couldn't talk enough about the way he could capture celebrities. Right. I mean, he was, he was another Hirschfeld in, in his own way in terms Absolutely. of the ability to really capture people's likenesses and everything. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. I mean, the things that he would do with, I mean, and no color, just, just pen and ink, black and white what he would capture the essence of things. I mean, there are honestly tons of movies 
that I thought I saw and then later realized, oh, wait, no, I only read the <laughs> Mad Magazine parody of it. <laughs> but I got a pay A on the paper in film studies. So, <laughs> <laughs> man, I, you know, and again, everything is of its time. I do understand. But I got to tell you, last year when they uh, kind of shuddered mad. Oh. It, yeah. Because, it, it, again, we're close enough in the same age, man, that, yeah. I, I was the same way. I if you were thirteen, you know, more so even than the lampoon, Mad Mad was your parrot Mad was your first real uh exposure to satire. I know you feel the same yes. way, obviously. Yeah. And and they they threaded that needle between being that that sort of, you know, um safe enough that they wouldn't get shut down by the Frederick Wordhams of the world, but also being um, you know, Dirty enough <laughs> that as a fourteen-year-old boy, you thr thrilled to it. It's like, oh, my mom would not want me reading this. <laughs> they they always manage to get right in there, and I feel like the current version. You know, um, my buddy Bill Morrison was running it for a while, yes, and I did. feel like they managed to do it too. You know, it was in a in a new Jack way, and I was like, wow, it's much dirtier than <laughs> it could have been <laughs> in our day. But then again, these are kids growing up with access to the internet. You know, but it was there was still a certain level of innocence to it. It wasn't it wasn't the Internet. You know, yeah. it was. And I think that actually had more to do with the level of quality. than You know, you know, they kept it good. But, yeah, the yeah. fact that that is gone and that because my, my son was still reading, I, reading Mad oh, Magazine. That's great, man. You know, and the fact that that the kids coming up won't have that really does really bums me out. You know. I agree. And I and Bill's been on the show as well. And I was really happy when he took over Matt and it was way too short of a tenure. And yeah. again, I, I, you know, publishing is what it is right now. And it's, yeah, it's tough to survive as a magazine these days. And even the great ones that we grew up with aren't as great as they used to be. I mean, God, Sports Illustrated certainly isn't the magazine we read as, as kids and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So and and honestly, I, I just I feel I feel so bummed out. I wish, I wish there had been like a sketch comedy explosion you know the way there's been the superhero movie explosion because honestly i feel like that's what's keeping in a lot of ways in the overall corporate mentality that's what's keeping comics alive in a lot of ways is you know well, well let's keep you know, warner brothers is keeping dc comics alive as research and development for their you know movie franchises yeah you know but there, there was no, you know, equivalent, you know, for comedy and satire, and, and which is really bum because we need satire now, you know, we need intelligence in any way that it can show up. I agree with that, man. Well, it is interesting, and it's been fun talking to people that have uh, created their own opportunities, uh, shooting web shows and things like that, and, and the, the comedy groups that have come from the online product and everything. So that's kind of neat. I, you know, man, I'll tell you, when I got into radio, I remember Firesign Theater and the credibility uh, gap and the committee and really mm -hmm. thought as I was graduating, because we even had an offshoot of Second City called The Usual Suspects that oh. were on the rock station through okay. the early 90s and still doing sketches. And I'm like, that's the kind of radio I want to do. And right. it's right up by the time I broke into radio and stuff. I was lucky to get on a sports station and 
do a few like parody songs and a few making mm. fun of the owners, making fun of certain players and stuff like that. Right. So I got to do a little bit of it, <laughs> but never the extent that I really wanted to. I got to actually interview uh, Phil Proctor from uh, Fireside Theater. <gasps> oh, yeah, really? That was fun. And I know awesome, he's a big awesome. he's a big voiceover guy. I don't know if you've ever. Oh yeah. Oh, I have. Yes, I actually That's have cool. a picture of um, the Futurama cast and Phil Proctor together from a convention. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's outstanding, man. They were kind of forerunners of Futurama with some of their ideas, Fireside. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, I know Steve yeah, Jobs. The, the level of intelligence that they had in their comedy. No you question. Know, especially at the time that they were doing, when, when a lot of it was simply just about being transgressive, you know? <laughs> And they were like, no, and we're also going to be super clever and take our take this thought somewhere else, you know. No, I love their albums. Yeah, man, that that was pretty groundbreaking stuff for especially the seventies and stuff. That was that was really really neat. So we we can wrap up. So I'm just curious, is you know, um, obviously the virus has everything on hiatus. Are there things in the pipeline that you've got coming up that you that you might want to let people know about? Yes. Oh, it's always so tough with voiceover. Because people will say, so what are you working on? Well, what they really want to know is, what were you working on a year ago that I'm going to be able to see in the next couple of months? Because <laughs> there's such a huge lag time. Um, but, you know, I mean, thankfully, in animation, we're one of the few corners of show business that's able to continue creating and doing new, new material. So I'm doing some recording now for some stuff. Um, but the things I've been working on that are in the pipeline and coming out, DC Superhero Girls, um, Great. Which, is, which is so much fun. That was uh, rebooted by Lauren um, Faust, the queen of rebooting. Uh, she, I worked with her on a show called Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends, which was just a, an amazing, lovely, lovely kids show. And after that, she went and, you know, oh, I'm talking to these folks at Hasbro about rebooting one of their old things from the 90s. Boom! My Little Pony. Friendship is magic, absolutely. Right. And then she um, took over uh, Superhero Girls, and I think did a fantastic job with it. So those episodes are coming out. What do you um, play on Superhero Girls? Um, I'm, I'm Barry Allen, The Flash. <laughs> That's great. And also, the great Zatara. Wow, Zatanna's uh, father. And yes. one of the original uh, characters of Action Comics. Alongside yes. Superman back in the Golden Age, absolutely, we love Zatara. Sure, yeah. Well, sure, he was a sure he was an old time ripoff of Mandrake the Magician, but that's okay. <laughs> Slam Bradley is Sam Spade. It's all right, exactly. You know, um, what else? Uh, a show on uh, Cartoon Network called Craig of the Creek, which is fantastic, um, and um, our Adult Swim show, The Jellies. Um, actually, I, somebody just posted the other day that Adult Swim has put up all of the episodes of Samurai Jack um, available for, um, for, to, for to watch on That's their website. Amazing. That's excellent, and, man. Oh, and also, I mean, I'm not sure, I don't think we have a, a launch date yet, but I'm doing, um, along with Susan, Kevin Smith's uh, Masters of the Universe. I did read that. I did talk to Susan about that. And yeah, that's excellent. And though they got a great front cast and support oh, yeah. group as well. And uh, do I have any episodes of Harley? I did a few. I did a few episodes was, of Harley Quinn. I wasn't sure, man. I did talk to Patrick Schumacher last yes. week. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Oh God, that's such a great show. Who oh. are you playing on Harley? Um, let's see. I played uh, Praxis in the <laughs> uh, Queen of Fables episode, and um, I think I've done a couple of other smaller characters. Okay, yeah, great writing. 
Oh my God. Yeah. Such a great show. So funny. And, and it's funny cause I actually, whenever they bring me in, I'm like, Oh shoot. Cause you walk in that room and everybody else is like a movie star and the TV legend. You know, it's like, <laughs> I'm so happy they're they're using a couple of voice actors. <laughs> so is that I mean honestly, and I can appreciate that, and I know you're and you're you're being a good sport about that. It is interesting that for decades they were really siloed, and you know you you had your voice actors and you did have your live actors, and I mean in some cases I get it, and certainly in the case of like somebody like Katie Siegel or Seagal, and I forget how right. you say her name, but you know she's got personality in her voice now. A lot of these face actors and stuff, like, and I don't, I'm not even going to need to name anybody. Sure, they're 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 big names, but right. it's not like there's character in their voice alone. And and so yeah, you see a big leading actor doing a cartoon, and it's like, hey, this really could have been anybody, and maybe they kind of missed out not having a more trained voice actor that really right. can use their voice and and really give a character more dimension. Yeah, well, it's it's fascinating because I believe that it's rooted in an old business model thing, where if our budget is this high, we have to pay our actors this much, you know? And that's the thing, when they were doing these feature, anim these animated features, you know, we're doing tr Space Treasure Island. Well, do you wanna get, you know, um, Billy West to play, you know, here? No, we have to get Brad Pitt. It's like, yes. Man, what's your problem? Ain't nobody, ain't nobody in creation ever paid money to not see Brad Pitt, <laughs> except you. That's what I was thinking. Titan AE. I, you know, there's. I think. I think right. Pitt might have been the lead in that. You know, yeah. it's and it's one of those things. I mean, on one hand, I think they're thinking, oh, we need it for promotional purposes. Right. Yeah. Because what was that that animated movie that Roseanne started? Yeah. Because kids love to watch The Tonight Show and listen to Roseanne recommend what animated feature they want to go to. What are you talking about? There's no crossover there. But it's, it's half that, it's half just, I want to meet the stars and I only do cartoons, so <laughs> let's hire them. Um, but now you're seeing a traction. Um, Uh-oh, did I lose you again? No, no you're there. You're here. Yeah, we're good. Uh, um, you're seeing a weird contraction because now the walls between movies and TV are breaking down and there are fewer movies. So a lot more people are accessible. It's like, well, you know, we can get Vin Diesel for this animated series. <laughs> Let's get him. You know, I mean, although I do have to give Patrick and Justin and those guys credit and it is you can tell they're not just casting for names you know because people are doing voices they don't even set like tony hale doing dr psycho that's not even that's not even like a tony hale-esque character i'm with you yeah you know they're hiring really talented people i mean you got i mean alan tudyk can do anything you know yes, and and that's the thing they're doing that so they're doing it right you know like the like when they hired you know, Robin Williams for Aladdin. Yes, you're hiring a star for an animated feature, but he's also an incredible creative force who is going to, you know, plus your script. You know, same, yeah. way, same thing with Chris Rock. Like, you're hiring him to play a Chris Rock character, but he's bringing a specific tone and element to it. 
But of course, I'm 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 biased on that one because after Chris does the movie, if they wanted you know a video game or a TV show, they can't afford him. So they come to me, and I'm Have your you cut rate Chris Rock. <laughs> no, I was going to ask. That's outstanding. I've taken over char uh, characters for him like three or four times. That's fantastic, man. That's excellent. No, and I well, I know Tom Hanks's brother, you know, was doing Woody beyond the movies and stuff. Any any commercials, it was Hanks's brother. But that's great. And again, man, uh, Kevin Hart. Can I hear a little Kevin Hart? <laughs> oh well, Kevin's Kevin's stuff. Yo, because Kevin's got that little voice. Where he's just way up high, man. What's your problem, brother? You know, outstanding, man. No, it's great, and I. You know, of course, we all do Sammy, but I, uh, but I, you know, you know, <laughs> good Lord, you know. Yeah. So. But nobody gets, actually, that's, that's a joke among us older voice guys is like, we used to do impressions. Now they're original characters because none of the executives <laughs> are old enough to recognize them. <laughs> yeah. There's this character I do, man. Who's just like this crazy cat, dude. You know, <laughs> they think I made that up. That's true. Well, and it's what goes around comes around because certainly that was the case in Hanna Barbera back in the fifties and sixties. And you know, it was. I mean, of all people, Arnold Stang doing Phil Silvers for Top Cat. You know, it's like okay, okay, why not? And you know, God, Alan Reed was great. Obviously, I mean, it's. I'm telling you, man. It's. Uh, I I love hearing the stories about those those kind of voiceover things. And you're right about that. I uh, I, I I can see. Yes, there's you got a couple generations, so you can bring back those old voices. That's wonderful, man. Outstanding, yeah. Phil. It's been a pleasure. Seriously, I, yeah. thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I hope that when conventions do eventually, hopefully, come back, uh, that I'll uh, I'll run into you again, and uh, yeah. you know, and and geez, if you'd be willing, you're you're more than welcome to come back anytime you've got something new to promote. Uh, oh, great! It'd be a pleasure to talk to you. So seriously, I mean, no, and uh, and thank you, thank you very much, because uh, again, it's it's always we all love when uh, somebody is doing one of these nerd things and they're passionate about it before they got the role. And clearly that's the case with you, so. Yeah, no, this is so much fun. And John, thank you for doing this podcast because um, I'm out of podcasts. It's you and Karina Longworth. That's all I've got. Because <laughs> baseball, se there's no baseball season, so I can't listen to baseball tonight. <laughs> I understand, man. No, believe me. I, I've been watching old boxing on YouTube to kind of get me through it and everything. So I know, I know the feeling. I absolutely yeah. know the feeling. And well, you do great work, man. Love it. You're, well, you're very kind. You do amazing work. Continued success. And uh, thank you for doing this. And truly, all the best. All right, man. Take good care of yourself. That's Phil Lamar. Don't forget, uh, this is the best of 2020 week. I'll have more episodes for you uh, celebrating uh, the uh, the best conversations Word Balloon had during this very weird time. But also on Wednesday night, I hope you'll join us on Word Balloon Live for Drink and Draw uh, to support Hero Initiative. we got about uh, 10 great comic book artists getting together to have an artist jam session and do uh, sketches for uh, the charity Hero Initiative. And it's going to feature my friends like Phil Hester and uh, Gabe Hardman and Cully Hamner and Jamal Igel and uh, Ibrahim Mustafa, Taki Soma, uh, Jules Rivera, so many interesting creators, and of course, the great Walt Simonson as well. So uh, I hope you'll join us for a fun conversation as uh, they all uh, do what they can for the Hero Initiative. That's going to be happening on Wednesday night, December 30th, 8.30 uh, Central Time, 9.30 Eastern, 
right here on Word Balloon and at Mainframe Comic Con. Word Balloon is brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you greatly, League, for your support via Patreon. Patreon.com slash Word Balloon. Uh, subscribing to Word Balloon really helps out the show. It uh, allows me to innovate as I've been doing this year, uh, creating the uh, video channel on YouTube. And uh, this has really helped me out in keeping the lights on here at WordBalloon.com. Word Balloon is free. It'll always be free. But if you want to help out the cause, consider subscribing to Word Balloon via Patreon. Patreon.com. Word Balloon is also brought to you by Aftershock Comics. It is uh, celebrating the work of Cullen Bunn this month. All My Little Demons is a Cullen Bunn omnibus collecting a lot of his great creator-owned work that he has put together for Aftershock Comics, including the Brothers Dracul, the full series. There's Dark Ark After the Flood, 1 through 5, Knights Temporal, 1 through 5, Unholy Grail, 1 through 5, the original graphic novel Witchhammer, Bloodlines from Shock, Volume 1, and Man, I Am Evil, Dude, from Shock, Volume 2. Lots of great supernatural stories from Cullen Bunn, great creator-owned stuff from Aftershock Comics, and uh, not only that, but also great series that are underway, things like Kaiju Score. Uh, We've got the second issue of that coming out at the end of the month. Sympathy for No Devils from Brandon Thomas also coming out uh, at uh, the end of the month, December 30th. And uh, hell, just uh, underway, great uh, books like the Spy series from Stephanie Phillips, Red Atlantis, and the graphic novel Kill a Man from Steve Orlando, Philip Kennedy, and Al Morgan. Don't forget, you can find great books at Aftershock Comics. You'll find amazing genre-bending ideas from some of the top creators out there. Check it out for yourself. Go to their website, AftershockComics.com. Thanks a lot for listening. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2020. Stay safe, stay happy, stay healthy. Take care, everybody.